Nomine Patris et Fidi, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia pleno, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu mudiarbus, et benedictus fructus entris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. In nomine Patris et Fidi, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laudate Jesus Christus. I'm Timothy S. Flanders. This is the meaning of Catholic. Today we're going to be talking about America and Americanism. This is an introductory episode to give you some of the background of the history of what we're going to continue to be talking about. And we're going to look at this from a number of different angles. And I'm going to discuss why this is so important in just a minute. Um, but first, I want to give you a preview of what's to come. Tomorrow, we're going to have Dr. Ed Mazza on, and we're going to talk from the era of Christendom, aka medieval era, about toleration and some of the scholastics and their efforts in that time, and how that has to do with the modern controversies regarding Dignitatis Humanae. And then on Friday, we're going to have a debate between Timothy Gordon and Ryan Grant on the founding of America and its Catholic principles or not, and we're going to be discussing that. So the purpose of this episode is just to give you a basic introduction to a lot of the, the different historical factors involved with this. And the reason for this is the American history, in fact, explains a great deal of the modern Catholic crisis. And the reason for that is, I'm going to quote from Pope Benedict's famous hermeneutic of continuity speech, where he discusses that it was actually America that uh, turned the tide, turned the understanding of many of the churchmen to throw in their lot with secular democracy. So here's a quote, quote, in the 19th century under Pius IX, the clash between the church's faith and a radical liberalism and the natural sciences had elicited from the church a bitter and radical condemnation of this spirit of the modern age. Thus, it seemed that there was no longer any milieu open to a positive and fruitful understanding, and the rejection by those who felt they were the representatives of the modern age was also drastic. In the meantime, however, the modern age had also experienced developments. People came to realize that the American Revolution was offering a model of a modern state that differed from the theoretical model with radical tendencies that had emerged during the second phase of the French Revolution. So it was that both parties were gradually beginning to open up to each other. In the period between the two world wars, and especially after the Second World War, Catholic statesmen demonstrated that a modern secular state could exist that was not neutral regarding values, but alive, drawing from the great ethical sources opened by Christianity. End quote. So the what this is, so Ratzinger is saying that the idea of America came to be understood by many churchmen to be a way of looking at the modern world differently than the French Revolution. And, and this is a very, I think, very historically true to say that the French Revolution was really what caused the church to react so drastically against the liberalism that had been growing since 1789, since the revolution in France. And so the assertion of, of Pope Benedict here is that people game, began to understand that the American liberalism was of a different character and was not essentially anti-clerical by its very essence, as the French Revolution by and large was. So uh, this introductory episode is going to cover, in particular, the Irish and German perspective on American history. And then in a few weeks, we're going to have Black Catholic history with David L. Gray. We're also going to have Hispanic 
Catholic American history with Luis Medina. So uh, also next week, we're going to talk about economics. So we'll be talking about uh, libertarianism with Eric Sammons. And also we'll also have D Dr. Levi Russell talking about the more distributist viewpoint as well. So we're going to be covering these things. And, and these are really essential because this is the way that the church began to shift away from what I would what I would refer to as the Pian Magisterium, which is from about uh, 1780s and 90s with Pius VI condemning the French Revolution, the Synod of Pistoia, all the way to Pius XII, 1958. That whole block I refer to as the Pian Magisterium, which was condemning all of liberalism and all the principles of liberalism. And now we have the conciliar area that we are in now, which is basically kind of taking liberalism based on America instead of based on the French Revolution. And so it's essential for us to grapple with the American history and try to understand it and understand what was going through the fathers of the Second Vatican Council, what was going through their heads on that as sympathetically as we can and really discuss it and, and hash it out. So that's the purpose for this. Uh, not only that, we're also in an election year with America, which will have ramifications all, all across the world. So that's the purpose for these investigations that we're doing. Um, I, I want to share the sources that I'm working with here. Um, first of all, I've got Timothy Gordon, uh, Catholic Republic, uh, Family Without Fathers. This is an excellent work by David Popinoy about the breakdown of the family in America. We've got Puritan's Empire by Charles Cologne, uh, Russell Kirk, one of the great uh, Catholic conservatives. Uh, this is the best critique I've seen of America as comes from Ferrara, Liberty of the God That Failed. Uh, also, there's the excellent, uh, this is an excellent study uh, by Weimhoff that E. Michael Jones published about John Courtney Murray, and we'll get into some of that stuff. So let's get uh, into it here. Um, so when we talk about the founding of America, the we talked about in our Charles Kloom show uh, that history essentially gets ideologized. And there's a lot of different factors. When you look at the founding fathers and the framers of the Constitution, Tom Paine, other agitators, there's a lot of different factors going on. And so, first of all, we can look at the most uh, positive factor, really, of the American Revolution, which, in fact, is confirmed later on by Leo the Leo the Thirteenth, which we'll we'll read that. Um, so, I want to read a few quotes that Gordon brings in his in his work, Catholic Republic. So he's basically arguing that the um, Catholic uh, framing has strong Catholic principles behind it. And I'm just going to read a few quotes here from, uh, so one of the things he, he discusses is St. Thomas Aquinas says in his uh, commentary on, on Lombard and Sentences, chapter 4, 44, 2, 2, uh, says, quote, he who kills a tyrant to free his country is to be praised and rewarded. So Gordon argues that Aquinas has the idea of a, the, the right of revolution which is a strong Catholic principle, obviously, embedded in the American Revolution. And here's a few quotes that just talk about the, the ideas on the framers of really trying to inculcate virtue. So here's, um, here's uh, James Madison in the Virginia Ratifying Convention. He says, quote, to suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without any virtue in the people is a chimerical idea. Um, so we also have uh, John Adams says, our constitution was written for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And we also, going over to Russell Kirk, um, the quote that I have here from him, he, he mentions uh, Justice Joseph's story in, uh, later on in 1833. And this is really 
as the uh, second great awakening, this religious revival is happening at this time. And he says, quote, the general, if not the universal sentiment in America was that Christianity ought to receive encouragement from the state so far as was not incompatible with the private rights of conscience and the freedom of religious worship, end quote. So there's a number of, and we can go on and on, but there's a lot of different quotes where the, these, these revolutionaries are saying that they, then this, the populace needs to have virtue. They're talking in a lot of these uh, classical terms. And as I'll, as I'll point out, this is something that is also confirmed by Leo XIII when he talks about it later on in, in the 19th century. Now, however, at the same time as there was a great deal of uh, that, the, the other factor is anti-Catholicism. One of the provocations of the American Revolution was the Quebec Act, which is where George III allowed the Catholics of Quebec to continue to practice their religion. And that was a, a huge provocation for the Protestants who thought that he was reverting back to what happened before the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688, which is where there was a Catholic polity, there was a Catholic uh, royalty that was giving more tolerance, obviously, to Catholics. And so um, this is something that comes out, and this is where you also, not only anti-Catholicism, but you have the Masonic element, uh, the secular element. And I just want to read a few quotes here from that Cologne brings up. And he just talks about how it was understood by these men that they believed that they were bringing forth something that was completely beyond precedent. It was, it was a new dawn of a new era. It was the Novus Ordo Seclorum. And so they believed something that was really, it was basically a new incarnation, essentially, of some sort. Um, so here's John Adams in 1813, letter to Thomas Jefferson, November 15th. He says, quote, our pure, virtuous, public, spirited, federative republic will last forever, govern the globe, and introduce the perfection of man, end quote. So you see, that's essentially blasphemy, because no earthly kingdom will really endure forever. Only his kingdom will have no end, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so when you have a, an idea like that, that is that is part of the American cultus, which we'll discuss in just a minute. But um, here's Thomas Jefferson, letter to um, Benjamin Waterhouse, June 26, 1822. And Thomas Jefferson says this, I rejoice that in this blessed country of free inquiry and belief, which has surrendered its creed and conscience to neither kings nor priests and genuine doctrine of only of one only God is reviving. And I trust that there is not a young man now living in the United States who will not die a Unitarian, end quote. A Unitarian is a heretic. And it's basically an Aryan who doesn't believe in the Trinity. So Thomas Jefferson is hoping that that's, that's what will prevail. Here's um, John Adams again. And, th and this is how he framed this in, in these terms of this coming into this new era. So this is how he understands it. And he understands it as overcoming monarchy and overcoming Roman Catholicism. So he says this, quote, this is um, June 20, 1815 a letter. The question before the human race is whether the God of nature shall govern the world by his own laws or whether the priests and the kings shall rule it by fictitious miracles. Or, in other words, whether authority is originally in the people, or whether it has descended from 1,800 years in a succession of popes and bishops, or brought down from heaven by the Holy Ghost in the form of a dove in a file of holy oil. So here's he's he's uh, mocking the the legend of Clovis, king of the Franks, and how he was anointed 
um, with this file of holy oil. And then in uh, February 2nd, 1816, he writes a letter referring to, quote, that stupendous monument of human hypocrisy and fanaticism, the Church of St. Peter at Rome, end quote. So there's this great deal of anti-Catholicism. And we even have George Washington, who is some kind of grand wizard Mason. He actually performs a Masonic ritual to baptize the Capitol in Washington, D.C. So there's certainly, so on the one hand, we can we can certainly agree. I think I think Gordon does make a good case that there is a great deal of Catholic principle involved with the founding, but we also need to admit that there's also a great deal of anti-Catholicism. There's a great deal of Masonic influence as well. Um, second, we can also point, or third, rather, we can we can also point to economic interests. There's also a grand, a great deal of a desire to retain the power. The founding framers uh, were oligarchs. They were not elected officials by the, their colonist brethren. They were, in fact, imposing their will on the populace. That's what they believed was, I mean, they're saying that it was the liberty of the people, uh, we the people. Um, but in fact, they were oligarchs, and they believed that they, what they were doing was sort of for the sake of the people or on their behalf or, you know, understanding them as sympathetically as possible. But there was a great deal of economic interest. So uh, slavery, uh, merchants, smuggling, um, this, you know, the... The uh, Tea Act and the, the Boston Tea Party, those things were over merchants who the, these taxes were threatening their profits. You know, these were businessmen who were seeking to secure their own profits. And so that's that's another factor. Um, another factor that's the fourth factor I want to bring up that is also connected with the economic interest and also with the American cultists, which we'll discuss in a moment, is imperial ambitions. So another large provocation was the proclamation of 1763 after the Seven Years' War, so-called the French and, French and Indian War. 1763, the, the British crown states that the colonists cannot impede into Indian territory to the west of the Appalachians, 1763. And this is a large provocation because the colonists want to expand into Indian territory. They want to take the land. And so that's a massive provocation. And so that the imperial ambitions start to come to the fore almost immediately. Um, these many of the framers, I believe, if memory serves, Benjamin Franklin and Washington were both seeking out land in the West as well, uh, Ohio Territory and the like. Jefferson sends out um, explorers to the West, uh, Lewis and Clark, to go to the West Coast. Um, and very soon you see this imperial ambition to conquer the rest of the territory. And this is what later becomes what's known as manifest destiny, which we'll talk about in a moment. So um, what are the Catholics doing in this? Now, the Catholics, so Charles Carrollton of, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, rather, he is one of the wealthiest men in the colonies at this time. He's a Catholic. He signs the Declaration of Independence. And many of the, according to uh, Colum, the the elites who were the Catholic elites, and there are a few of them, like Carroll, they support the revolution because that's in their economic interest, whereas the rank and file Catholics are generally more loyalists. So in the American Revolution, uh, this is something that Ferrara points out, which is also he's quoting Rothbard, who is a pro-Americanist. He points out that in the American Revolution, there was actually... Um, 10 times the number of refugees who fled the country as the French Revolution. 
So the French Revolution, certainly we talk about a great deal of bloodshed in, in the French Revolution. But in the American Revolution, I'm not uh, finding this. I'm not finding the reference right now. But in the American Revolution, the the refugees that fled because of the imposition of the revolution in America was actually 10 times the number as there was in France. And in France, those immigrants came back. Whereas in the British colonies, they either went to Canada or they went back to the British Isles. So those people never came back. And there was an imposition of the, of the revolutionary will by the revolutionaries, as we see in really, this is kind of the uh, very similar that happens in, in all sorts of different revolutionaries. So the, uh, let's see, where am I? So yeah, so the, the division of Catholics is basically into those elites and rank and file. One of the interesting things is that uh, Carol, as well as his his brother, his cousin, uh, Father John Carroll. So we got Charles Carroll and uh, his cousin, who's a priest, Father John Carroll. They go in a, in a coach to Quebec with Benjamin Franklin in order to try to convince the Canadians to join the revolution. And the Canadians knew that they were using anti-Catholic rhetoric. And so Bishop Brouillon of Quebec actually excommunicates John Carroll. He refuses to allow his priests to associate it with him. And they come back from their mission without any alliance from Canada. So this, this uh, man, John Carroll, was somebody who was very, uh, they say, timid towards the Americans, towards uh, Benjamin Franklin. He, they did not discuss religion with him on this long journey to Quebec. And so they did not really struggle to convert. Um, the Kalum asserts that uh, Carroll was basically an Americanist and Carroll his his biggest thing was that Rome should not have more dominion over America and that the liturgy, liturgy should be in English. And those were his two biggest things that he was focused on. John Carroll was the first bishop appointed through the intervention of Benjamin Franklin. He was appointed bishop and that was our first bishop. So moving on. So the first imperial ambition besides the um, Indian Wars, we'll, we'll get to in a moment, is the invasion of Canada, 1812. So this is what's called the War of 1812. And this is where the United States attempted to take over Canada. Uh, it was a failure, but it coalesced into a great deal of patriotism. So the United States gained a great deal of love for their country. And this was when the American cultists began to really take hold. And this is through a man named Noah Webster. He's known for the Webster's Dictionary. And one of the things that he says is that the public schools should no longer teach the Greek classics. They should not teach Greek and Latin, which he calls dead languages. And they should teach things that will help students love America. And this is the beginning of the public schools beginning becoming more of an ideolo ideological system. So to in order to ideologize the students so that they love their country, they, they love these, these national heroes, and they have this ideology into them instead of the wisdom of the past. And so this is a, a crucial, very crucial point here because the school system is being taken over by governments across the world. And this is something that the church is fighting in Europe at this time. And the educational system is extremely important. And that's really what is the crux of this because the, these reformers, and, and even if we 
give the greatest benefit of the doubt to the Americans. We know that, you know, in France or elsewhere where these liberal revolutions are happening, they are dismantling the education, they're taking over the education, and they want to educate, they want to brainwash the youth from their infancy, from their, you know, get these children into the, the school so that they can give them the ideology and then they can believe in the ideology. So they're targeting the children. Uh, later on, Marx, Marx targets the family itself. The family should be taken out by the state, taken over by the state. So education is a very important thing. And this, the invasion of Canada in 1812 ends up being a great patriotic war. The Star-Smangled Banner is the national anthem of the United States is written during this war. Uh, so it's a failure of the planned invasion, but it really unites the country in a great deal of patriotism. Now, what's also happening at this time is the first industrial revolution. This is during a period where there's a great deal of urbanization. People are being forced out of their farms, whether that's just their, their land is being taken or like in, in Britain during the enclosure time, or they are just being forced out by prices. They can no longer sell their, their, uh, their agriculture. So they have to move to the cities. They have to start working in factories. And this is where also in Europe and America, where the subsidy observance begins to decline even more. It already was, but it begins to decline even more. So Sunday rest is threatened. There's far more, le far less people ha observing Sunday rest. Employers are forcing people to work seven days a week, 12 hours a day. They're forcing women and children to work. And this is something that breaks up the family. And so no longer do you have the family economic unit together on the farm. You have mom and dad uh, working apart from one another. The mom may be at home or she may be in a factory or the children may be in a factory. So it's breaking up the family. And this is a crucial piece because it's going to have a, a massive effect on everything. And then the Sunday observance is also going to have a massive effect. But during this period, which is known as the antebellum period, in the United States history, that's that's before the Civil War number two, because we we count the American Revolution as Civil War number one. Civil War number two, it starts in 1861. So before 1861, we had the the failed invasion of Canada, but one of the great the great wars that are happening now are the Indian Wars. And so the United States government is funding the army to move out the Indians, take their land, force them out. There is the famous episode with Andrew Jackson, where there are the five civilized tribes who take their case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court rules in their favor, says you can't take their land. Andrew Jackson does it anyways. And so he forces the Indians out. Um, there is also a great deal of rising economic tension because with the Industrial Revolution and the continued existence, there's also a cotton boom going on. So in the South, there, the ag agrarians are still a strong agrarian economy with, with slavery. And there's the factory system in the North. And so there's a strong economic tension as the imperial ambition begins to proceed into the West. And you have the Louisiana Purchase with Thomas Jefferson sort of gaining a lot of territory. They're going West. They're taking Indians land. And what results from this is there's a great deal of tension between the Northern economic elites and the Southern economic elites. So the Northern elites are obviously employing great, a great deal of men, women, and children in their factories. And the Southern elites are employing or rather enslaving Africans, 
in their farms. And so these are the elites. And so most people don't have this opportunity. It, you know, it's 10 to 20% of the Southern planters actually own slaves. Most people don't because they're not rich enough to own slaves. So most of the Southerners don't actually have slaves and most of the Northerners don't actually own factories. But these are the economic tensions that are going to, they're continuing to build as the United States moves West. Now in 1823, we have what's known as the Monroe Doctrine. Now the Monroe Doctrine is a doctrine that comes out and it is by President Monroe, which states that the European influence will no longer be welcome. It's essentially the United States claiming the Western hemisphere for itself. So the, the Western expansion is continuing to expand. These imperial ambitions are becoming realized. They're forcing the Indian out. They're taking land to the West. And then they say to Europe, you are no longer welcome here. This is only American. This is ours. And that's what the Monroe Doctrine says. I'm going to quote Thomas Jefferson again. And this is from this, this time period where Thomas Jefferson is um, writing to President Monroe about this, this concept. And they're talking about taking the next step towards their empire. And so here's Thomas Jefferson, quote, this is a letter, um, this is from H.A. Washington, editor, writers of Thomas Jefferson, volume seven, page 317. This is in Colombe, page 176. So Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson writes this, quote, I candidly confess that I have ever looked at Cuba as the most interesting addition which could ever be made to our system of states, the control which, with Florida Point, this island would give us over the Gulf of Mexico and the countries and isthmus bordering on it, as well as all those whose waters flow into it would fill up the measure of our political well-being, end quote. So they're already thinking about, con they, they tried to conquest Canada, failed. They've been able to gain more land. Now they've got their eye on Cuba to try to take some of the trading territory and be able to continue the, the empire. Um, so this is the Monroe Doctrine. Now, Kalum asserts that the Monroe Doctrine allows the United States to begin to then support the revolutions against Spain. So they begin to support these revolutions in South America and in Central America against Spain. And this allows the United States to gain economic power over these areas. So this is, this is what uh, President John Quincy Adams says in 1826 regarding this period as the, the, the new Spain begins to be revolutionized against new, uh, new, um, old Spain. And th this is something that was very Masonic. It was very driven by Masonic intrigues and something that was supported by the United States. So here's what John Quincy Adams says in 1826 about this. Quote, this is from Colum 177. The advancement of religious liberty, some of the Southern nations are even yet so far under the dominion of prejudice that they have incorporated with their political constitutions an exclusive church without toleration of any other than the dominant sect. The abandonment of this last badge of religious bigotry and oppression may be pressed more effectively by the united exertions of those who concur in the principles of freedom of conscience. So United States is pressuring these Catholic countries to forsake their exclusive uh, claim of the Catholic church to be the one true church, to be the official church. 
And so the United States is helping this along. Now, this is something we'll get into a lot more with when we talk about Hispanic history in the, in the future. But this is a, a factor that we need to be cognizant of, especially from the Catholic perspective. So as this continues on, then we have in 1846, we have the invasion of Mexico. Now, at this same time, a very important event happens, and that is the famine in Ireland. Now, Our Lady of La Salette says that the famine is a punishment for a two things, the blasphemy against our Lord's name and the non-observance of Sunday rest. And so God sends this punishment, the, this famine, and this is what sends a great deal of Irishmen to the United States. So this is 1846. And also the invasion of Mexico happens. Now, this is the dispute which was happening. We don't have time to get into all the factors here, but essentially Texas gets annexed because a lot of the, United, the Americans were coming into Texas. And at this time, Texas was a part of Mexico. They were crossing the border, coming into Mexico, which was the, the Tejas territory. And they were, they were taking up their land, their residence there. They were basically illegal aliens, ironically. And they essentially caused a revolution and they declared their own republic. And then they later joined the United States. And they were basically Americans. So they, they sort of took over Tejas and they brought it into the United States. And then what happens is there's a border dispute between Mexico and the United States. And the what happens is President Polk sends the army into the disputed area. And so they've basically crossed into the disputed area, which Mexico says it is their territory. So they've crossed in and they essentially state that Polk averes that he has no intention of creating a war, but many people want a war. They want to take more land. They want to take Mexico. And so there is a war that goes on. Now, what's interesting is that about half of the American army at this time is immigrants. So the government was pressing these immigrants and many of them were Irishmen into the army. And there's the, there's this interesting story that uh, Ferrara brings up, which is where they were about to attack. And these Irishmen are sitting in the American army and they're looking across the battle lines to the Mexicans. The Mexicans have their priests blessing their weapons and going about with holy water. And the Irishmen suddenly realize that they're on the wrong side of the battle. And so they actually desert and join the Mexican side and they fight on their side against the Americans because they recognize their Catholic identity. So that's the San Patricos uh, Brigade. So after St. Patrick. So the invasion of Mexico proceeds. Uh, United States gains the, the modern Southwest. So all the way from Texas to New Mexico to California, that territory is gained from the invasion of Mexico, the Mexican-American War. Now, in 1848, a very fateful thing happens in Seneca Falls, New York. That is the Seneca Falls Convention, which is one of the first conventions of feminism. And I've read this before, but this is an important piece of this because as the family's breaking down, they have this revolutionary spirit which comes to the feminists. Now, What's interesting is that it gets mixed with the abolitionist movement because the abolitionist movement is trying to free the slaves, but then they realize that the women don't have property rights or they're also not given certain rights. And so they figured, well, we need to rebel against that as well. And so in the 1848, 
the feminist convention is uh, they have a declaration of sentiments, which is based on the declaration of independence. But it says that the tyranny is not coming from George the third. It's coming from men. And so women need to rebel against this tyranny. They need to get free from it. Uh, men won't allow them to have property, won't allow them to become the, they won't let them be clergy. This is something that goes into it as well. So that's an important aspect of this that comes back in 1848. So what else also happens in 1848 is Karl Marx writes the Communist Manifesto earlier that year. And 1848 is also gripping Europe in a great deal of revolution throughout this time. So, but the great influx of Irishmen come at this time period and they continue to come and they are flooding the United States and they cause a backlash. Uh, they don't cause a backlash, but there's a backlash of Protestants against them. And this is called the Native American movement or the nativists were basically white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who were pushing to push out the Irishmen. They don't, they don't want the Irish, they don't want the Catholics. And so the Native American movement was an attempt to ostracize and suppress the Irish influence in the United States. But the other large group of immigrants, which comes especially after 1870, when there's a Kulturkampf in Germany against Catholics, is the Germans. So the Germans, the Germans and the Irish, those are the big groups I'm going to talk to talk about right now. The Germans and the Irish, they formed these two dominant immigrant groups of Catholics, which began, came to dominate the Catholic culture within the United States. And there are important differences between them. The most important is that the Irishmen could speak English. And that was something that allowed them to assimilate far quicker than the Germans, because the Germans didn't speak English. And so the Germans created, uh, there's a, a certain a famous, if you read uh, The Remnant, is is a paper that derives from Der Wanderer, which was the paper uh, started by Germans in the Midwest in 1867. And so that's German language. And so the Germans do not assimilate as well as the Irishmen. And this is going to come to a head after the Civil War number two. But that's a, a, a crucial point that I want to raise in just a minute. And so then we have the, as the Tensions continue to build with the expansion westward. Eventually, the Second Civil War breaks out, 1861 to 65. Now, this was essentially the two different elites in the North and the South convincing tens of thousands of men to go to their deaths for their elite interests, both in the North and the South. And so this was... so. A number of factors when you read about uh, when you're taught about American history, at least in America, uh, it's essentially branded as an abolitionist crusade. Uh, and like I said, only a minority of Southerners even had slaves because you had to be rich to be have a slave. And so when you have an invading army into your territory, essentially a lot of Southerners simply just picked up weapons to defend themselves against invaders essentially however we need to also also admit that the in the constitutions of the confederacy in these official documents and and these official proclamations they were saying that the fundamental principle of the confederacy was the subjugation of the negro as a subhuman person and so 
that was an essential part of this as well. Slavery was absolutely essential. So it's not as if this was just a pure defensive war uh, to exonerate the South as, as sort of a, a freedom bearer. Now, the South did have a great deal more of Catholic culture because it had a, a lot more agrarian culture and also had Louisiana, which had a strong Catholic base, uh, formerly a French territory, as well as Florida. And so there was a strong, much stronger Catholic element, but they're not we shouldn't exonerate the South either. Now we shouldn't exonerate the North either because the North essentially there was the abolitionist movement, correct? So that was something that was a strong element in this, but there were also a great deal of secularizing uh, with the factory element, with the urbanization, a, a much stronger secularization in the North as well. And so there's a great deal more of anti-religion coming out of the Northern culture as well. So essentially it's a mixed bag. It's not something that's black and white, even though we look at it that way a lot today. It's one of the things, one of the, one of the effects is you have as at this time, this is modern warfare, basically. So there's a lot of new technologies come out of the civil war, um, which are sort of prefiguring of the bloodshed of world war one. So a lot of these new technologies are coming out. The second industrial revolution is coming about as well in the later part of the 19th century. The marriage laws continue to weaken. So this is where the divorce laws begin to be relaxed. Before this time, divorce was illegal. You couldn't divorce somebody. And this is where it begins to be weakened further and further, continuing on as we continue. So the so again, Der Wanderer, that's, that's founded by Joseph Matt. I believe that's the great, great, great grandfather of Michael Matt of the Remnant. Um, so that's 1867. That's right after the civil war. Number two, you also have a man who is a convert during this time who ends up being the center of a controversy. And that's father Isaac Hecker. He dies in 1888. Now he is a man who seeks to convert people allegedly by watering down the faith, trying to basically do ecumenism as what we might call ecumenism trying to update the faith and this becomes a problem. And as these immigrants continue to come in, there is an organization which begins to see a problem with these immigrations. And this is something that is highlighted by a man named uh, Kahensley. I believe he was German. There's also uh, French Italians, others involved with this father, Alphonse uh, Veillenevu, um, French Canadian priest, they're involved with this effort to try to stop the apostasy of immigrants. Because what they find is that during this time period, there are 10 to 20 million immigrants who lose their faith after they come to America. So they come to America and then millions of millions of them leave the faith. They leave the church. And so these, these groups are trying, this is the St. Raphael Society. Uh, patron of travelers. And they're trying to help the immigrants. They're trying to help the immigrants who go from the old country to the new, and they're trying to help them keep their faith. And so they actually petitioned Leo XIII to allow them to have their own native tongue spoken by the priest who's appointed to them, because they believe that like the Germans, if they keep their language and they keep their ethnic culture, that will help them keep 
Catholicism. Whereas if they lose language and they go to the WASP culture, they learn English and they only speak English, they, lo they lose their fatherland, they'll lose their faith. And so they petitioned Leo XIII to try to get at this. Now, this is, this is also the rise of two Irish bishops because the after the Civil War, a great number of Irishmen were able to be appointed as bishops, and two in particular, John Ireland and Gibbons, Edward Gibbons, the, uh, I don't know if that's Edward, let me look that up, but it's Gibbons and Ireland are the two bishops who are the bishops, the Irishmen, who are James Gibbons, I'm sorry. I think Edwards Gibbons is the historian. <laughs> um, James Gibbons is the, the man who is with Ireland forming the Irish power block in this dispute that arises because they oppose the efforts of the St. Raphael Society to help the immigrants continue with their culture to have their ethnicity still intact to try to preserve their faith. They oppose this. And they petition Leo Thirteenth. It ends up that uh, Leo Thirteenth is influenced by a man named Rampola. Now, Rampola is the Secretary of State of Leo Thirteenth. He is the protege of the future popes, Benedict XV, Pius XII, and John XXIII, Rampola. Now, a little bit about Rampola. He is are more amenable to the liberals and he is alleged to be a Freemason. He is famously vetoed from the papacy uh, after Leo XIII dies. Pius X is elected instead. So Rampola is a little bit of a controversial figure. I've looked into it. The evidence of his masonry is mixed as it usually is with that type of a claim. So it's not clear whether or not he's a Mason, but Rampola ends up, he influences Leo XIII he influences, oh, and sorry, a little, little known fact about uh, Rampola, again, his Episcopal pedigree, if you know what that is, that Episcopal, Episcopal pedigree is who consecrated you a bishop and who consecrated him a bishop. And if you look at all the, all the worst actors that we deal with today, um, the controversial figures, you know, these different figures, I can't quote them all, but, you know, the McCarrick, Whirl, Farrell, Bernadine. Many of them go back to Rampola. And in fact, Pope Francis does. So these pedigrees go back to Rampola. So Rampola is an interesting figure that it needs to be studied more. But Rampola influences Rilla the 13th, 1891. He rules against the St. Raphael Society. He says that the Rampola convinces them to put this in the hands of the Irish bishops to control. So they will be appointing the English-speaking priests who may not speak the tongue of their German congregation into these, these uh, pastorships. And so this is ruled against. And also in 1891, Rerum Novarum is written. So here we have Leo XIII trying to address the second industrial revolution and really the first. And he's trying to address the sufferings of the poor. He's trying to give aid to the trade unions against communism. And he's trying to address that. And this is something that the Germans are a great deal a part of in the United States. They're a part of the trade unions. 
they're skeptical of the so-called American dream. The Irish are not. The Irish are far more amenable to it. They are far more um, friends with the elites in the WASP country. So continuing on the 1890s, this is when the controversy of Americanism starts to come to the fore. Now, Americanism is a, is a term coined by Der Wanderer, the German newspaper in the Midwest, and they had, had been railing against what they called Americanism for some time, which they saw in the Irish bishops. Now, one of the, one of the German priests was actually in a, a conference. I'm going to read a quote here from uh, Weimhoff. Um, this is one of his sources that he brings up here. Um, and this is, this is an example of the anti-Americanist spirit among the Germans. This is a quote from Father Tappert, and he says, he says this, quote, Since our enemies kept up their sorry courage to concentrate their criminal attacks on a man from the center, who had been highly useful to the German Catholics immigrants, you will permit me to explain our attitude toward the ecclesiastics and religio-political questions which have so prominently occupied the Catholic mind recently in the United States. Our great enemy is liberalism the denial of the social kingship of Christ on earth. This great heresy of our time is threefold. First, an avowed unbelief. Second, social rationalism. Last but not least, an ecclesiastical liberalism, which here and there blocks our way. It holds sway over certain Catholics who have inscribed in their banner, union of the church with the age, with modern ideas, with Americanism. Hence the extolling of modern liberties, not as a requisite for a justified tolerance, but the, as the ideal of a political and ecclesiastical wisdom. Hence, the more than sparing attitude of this third kind of liberalism toward the secret societies. Hence, the unreasonable breaking away from sane Catholic tradition in the temperance and liquor question. So at this time, there was a there was the debate about temperance because they were trying to deal with the, all these men who were going off and they were using the money that they got from the factories. And they were spending it on alcohol, becoming drunks. It was a serious problem. And the Catholics, the, you know, these Protestants wanted to abolish alcohol, which they eventually did. The Catholics thought that was ridiculous, obviously. Um, so, but an example of this type of Americanism is what um, Cardinal Gimmons wrote in his book, Faith of Our Fathers, shortly after the First Vatican Council, 1870. So he, wrote, he writes this, he basically extols the American system as the ideal. And he says this, quote, if Catholics should gain the majority in a community where freedom of conscience is already secured to all by law, their very religion obliges them to respect the rights thus acquired by their fellow citizens, end quote. And so the, the idea with faith of our fathers is, is sort of omitting the obligation of the state to the Catholic church. Now, what's interesting is that Leo the 13th, and here's where we get into the, um, his, he has an encyclical letter called Longiqua Oceana, which uh, means he's transversing the ocean to see the American brethren. And this is an interesting document because Leo XIII tries to address the Americanist question because the Americanism, see what was happening was Isaac Heckard's biography was translated into French. It was written in French or one of them was. And so the idea of Americanism was spreading across Europe as well. And people, many ecclesiastics, were desiring to update the church, uh, be ecumenical, water down the faith, keep progress with the 
progress of America. And so this is going to come to a head with this Americanist controversy. And what Leo the 13th does here in Oceana is an interesting thing. So first of all, he, he, he praises America. So that, that first concept we talked about, the ideals of Western civilization, talking about rights, talking about li true liberties and justice, uh, virtue among the populace. Here's what Leo the 13th says, 1895, quote, we highly esteem and love exceedingly the young and vigorous American nation in which we plainly discern latent forces for the advancement of a like of civilization and of Christianity. Precisely at the epoch when the American colonies, having with Catholic aid, achieved liberty and independence, coalesced into a constitutional republic, the ecclesiastical hierarchy was happily established amongst you. And at the very time when the popular suffrage placed the great Washington at the helm of the republic, the first bishop was set by apostolic authority over the American church. The well-known friendship and familiar intercourse which subsisted between these two men, so that's John Carroll he's talking about, seems to be an evidence that the United States ought to be conjoined in concord and amity with the Catholic Church, and not without cause, for without morality the state cannot endure, a truth which that illustrious citizen of yours, Washington, whom we have just mentioned, with a keenness of insight worthy of his genius and statesmanship, perceived and proclaimed. But the best and strongest support of morality is religion. So we see Leo XIII praising America. So he is praising that there is a, a great deal of order and liberty and justice and a uh, just laws in this. And he's praising Washington. And this is something that even his enemy, George III, praised him at the time as Washington as being a very noble figure and a very, in many ways, and having a great deal of virtue. So we, we shouldn't pass over that, even though he was a Mason, even though he baptized the Capitol, we shouldn't, uh, this is not as black and white as many would like. So Leo goes on, quote, but moreover, a fact which is, gives pleasure to acknowledge, the Catholic Church's increasing thanks are due to the equity of the laws which obtain in America and to the customs of the well-ordered republic. For the church amongst you, unopposed by the constitution and government of your nation, fettered by no hostile legislation, protected against violence by the common laws and the impartiality of the judgment tribunals, is free to live and act without hindrance, end quote. So Leo XIII is praising the toleration of the Catholic Church. Now, I'm sure he wasn't aware of a lot of the riots and bloodshed and, and attacks on Catholics that were happening, but it was true that the church was growing, but the problem was that it was not growing by conversion. It was mostly growing by immigration. However, Leo XIII does does have a few uh, gentle rebukes to the American bishops. And here's what he says further. He says, quote, and this is directly at Gibbons. We just talked about how he sort of placed as an ideal. And that's what the Americanist controversy is about. It's, it's sort of placing the ideal of separation of church and state as the ideal system, which needs to be spread throughout the world, which is what the, you know, what we talked about, the imperialist ambitions were basically inheriting the Whig history, which was trying to improve the whole world through this progressive evolution. And the idea that God had sort of ordained America as being this special nation with a special perfect system that needed to be spread throughout the world. So here's what Leo XIII says about that. Quote, yet, although all this is true, it would be very erroneous to draw the conclusion that in America is to be sought the type of the most desirable status of the church or that it would be universally lawful or expedient for the church and state to be, as in America, dis dissevered and divorced. She would bring forth more abundant fruits if, in addition to liberty, 
She enjoyed the favor of the laws and the patronage of the public authority, end quote. So Leo XIII, who has written on this in multiple other documents at the time, comments that the separation of church and state is not ideal, even if it the, the lack of explicit hostility in the laws, which is true. There was no hostility in the laws. It was more in the in populace that they were dealing with, um, had allowed a growth to happen through immigration. But he's saying that that's, that's not the ideal. The ideal is that the church is recognized as the state religion because that is the right of Christ the king to be recognized as the king. So let's pass over to the Americanists. So I'm going to quote here from, uh, this is from two, two secondary sources, Kalum and Weimhoff, but they're quoting from a Monsignor uh, O'Connell, Dennis J. O'Connell. He's the rector of the North American College in Rome. And this is his, his Americanism. He praises Isaac Hecker because Hecker held a conviction that Roman political law was destined finally in all traces to pass away and the church was to hold generations yet to come through the power of the democratic, that is to say, the American ideal. So that idea is what the Americanists are holding up through O'Connell and, and others, Gibbons, as this big ideal. So then what happens is in 1898, we have the Spanish-American War. Now, remember, we talked about how many of the leaders in the early days were eyeing Cuba. They had the Monroe Doctrine. They were supporting the revolutions against Spain. But there were a few holdouts uh, by Spain, particularly Cuba, where the Spanish crown was still held sway, and they were loyal to the Spanish crown. And in the Spanish-American War, much like the Mexican invasion, there was a dubious provocation. There was, which no one really knows exactly what happened. There was a ship that was attacked. We're not sure how it happened, what exactly what it was, but it became a provocation for war. And this is what allowed the Americans to fight against the Span these Spanish territories and finally take them. And this is something that the Americanists share because the Americanists want this to continue to because they believe that America is this manifest destiny. They want this as this the ideal for the state and the church, even if it's Catholic. So I'm going to quote again from the, um, let me see where I'm, again from O'Connell here. So this is um, O'Connell. So he says, and he's, this is the context of the Spanish-American War. He says this, quote, it is the question of all that is old and vile and mean and rotten and cruel and false in Europe against all that is free and noble and open and true and humane in America. When Spain is swept off the seas, much of the meanness and narrowness of old Europe goes with it. <laughs> um, goes with it and to be replaced by the freedom and openness of America. This is God's way of developing the world. And all continental Europe feels that the war is it's against itself and that it is why they are all against us and Rome more than all because when the prestige of Spain and Italy will have passed away and when the pivot of the world's political action will no longer be confined with the limits of the continent, then the nonsense of trying to govern the universal church from a purely European standpoint and according to exclusively Spanish and Italian methods will be glaringly evident even to a child. And so there is this great celebration of the Americanist clergy at this time because they want 
the Spanish power to be crushed because they believe that the American religion, the American cultus is divinely appointed to spread. And the old, and this is, this is an actual war between the Americanists, the Americans and the Spanish Catholics. And so it's, it's a war between the new and old orders. And so uh, what's interesting is that the, uh, during this time, the American government suppresses Catholicism in these new territories. So they gain um, Puerto Rico, Cuba, Philippines. Uh, so here's an example of in Guam. So this is Spanish territory. Here's uh, what Kalum says. August of 1899, Governor Leary, he forbade religious possessions requiring feasts to be celebrated purely within churches or homes, ordered all couples to marry at once in civil ceremonies, outlawed the ringings of bells. Uh, he removed from classrooms the crucifixes, and he expelled all the priests from Guam, save one, and he also legalized divorce. So thankfully, this was actually reversed a year later, but this was the type of thing that was being enforced by the U.S. government in their efforts through this time. So as we continue on, this is so this is 1898. So then what happens? 1899, the 1899, we have the encyclical Testem Benevolente, Benevolente, I'm not sure if I even have that second word right, but this is the encyclical against Americanism. So this goes directly against the Americanist and it goes to the heart of the doctrine. So what Leo the 13th, so after all this, we have the Spanish and American war. We have his initial sort of attempt to address Americanism sort of in a very gentle and, and reconciliatory way. Then we have, then we have the encyclical in 1899. So the, this is what he says here. He has, here's a quote from this encyclical. So 1899, he says, quote, the underlying principles of these new opinions of Americanism is that in order to more easily attract those who differ from her, the church should shape her teachings more in accord with the spirit of the age and relax some of her ancient severity and make some concessions to new opinions. So then he talks about watering down the faith, um, concentrating on active works over the spiritual works of mercy. And so this is something that he attacks in America and names it as Americanism. Now, this is something that the, the, the Germans believe to have vindicated their whole position. They believe that they, Leo the 13th has come out in their favor and they have finalized this condemnation, which they believe vindicates their position. So here's what um, Kalum says about that, which I think is really interesting, his, his perspective here during this controversy. So he says this, the uh, the Americanist clergy treated the Spanish war as a holy crusade, just as the imperialists did. And for the same reason, they shared the same religion when all is said and done. Because they were not dealt with properly in 1899, they came to dominate the church in this country and to shackle her to the latest opinions of the oligarchy. It is the mark of the liberal Catholic that he believes politically whatever the rulers do. So Ireland was a Republican and a jingo. During the Depression, many prominent prelates were devout New Dealers. After that, in the 50s, they were resolutely anti-communist and today are interested in gay rights and the environment. 
But just as with our temporal rulers, the issues themselves do not matter, so too the liberal Catholic. The ideological ground shifts continually. All that matters is the reality of power. This is page 315 from Kulum. So I think that's a very interesting point because the the, the charge is that the Americanist clergy, the, the Gibbons in Ireland, are cozying up to the financial elites of the United States. And they're essentially trying to make the Catholic Church as... Uh, as unabrasive as possible and not trying to convert people, not trying to assert a uh, dominance over the political sphere, not trying to assert that the church has the only rights to be the official church, not trying to assert all of these things that Rome had been asserting for the entire century. This is, it's interesting in cyclicals, 1899, the church had been saying these things for more or less a hundred years to say these things. But the, the American clergy are asserting that they want to basically reconcile with the modern world. And Leo XIII says no. So now we're going to give another survey as we continue to 1900 all the way to 1960, the election of JFK. So the immigration continues, and this is just also going to be an introduction, but we're going to touch on a few important points. Uh, the Catholic immigration continues, and despite some of the efforts of Gibbons in Ireland, there is a continuation of the Catholic ghetto so that there is a great deal of communal life with these immigrants. They're speaking their language in these areas, in the cities, and they're able to cultivate a Catholic life and a strong Catholic parish life during the 1900s to the 1960s. And this is chiefly because of their ethnic heritage. They have all Polish, they, you know, all Polish or all German parishes where, you know, the inscriptions are in German or Polish or things like that. So there's a great deal of devotional life in the mother tongue. So there's a great deal of this that's happening during this time period. Now, the church then has to face the outbreak of World War One. Now, this, this war is... A turning point in the history of the world because one it's the end of all monarchy at this time uh woodrow wilson affects a very extensive propaganda campaign to convince americans that the germans are evil and he needs to quote make the world safe for democracy end quote and this is a shift from america being very much isolationist very much in the western hemisphere and influencing things uh, taking land and expanding to the West in their own territory and also into the Caribbean with the Spanish-American War and influencing these independence movements that are Masonically fueled in South America. But this is a shift of America turning back towards the fatherland, back towards Europe and to other countries in World War I. So World War I, Wilson gets America into the war in 1917, again, based on uh, a prov provocative, mysterious event. And Americans come in and turn the tide in 1917. Now, also in 1917, two important events happen. One is Our Lady of Fatima. And Our Lady of Fatima, as we know, comes down, calls the world to repent, and consecrate Russia to the, to the Immaculate Heart. The continued uh, dominance of this 
as a devotional piece continues and increases as the century goes on. Now, the the other event, obviously, is the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. And so the errors of Russia at this time begin to spread. And the errors of Russia can be boiled down to two different ones. And that one is the economic, which is the economic communism. And the other is uh, an attack on the family. And so the, the Bolsheviks are the ones who uh, destroy the family. They, they seek out uh, destroying the Ten Commandments, uh, commandments against adultery, uh, promoting abortion, these, they are promoting uh, women working outside the home. So they're promoting all these things, which more and more begin to pervade American society as well. And so that's an extremely important point. We'll get to that in a moment. So what happens, World War I, is that United States begins to become a world power. Now, as the post-war period begins, 1920s, there is a sexual revolution in America. And this is the period that's known to secular historians uh, as the Roaring Twenties. This is the time of prohibition. Um, this is the time of great deal of fashion that changes. There's more immodesty among women. Uh, prohibition, people are technically illegally drinking alcohol. It's the jazz era. And it's also when Hollywood begins to push pornography. Hollywood begins to produce films which have explicit sexual content. And this is something that shocks the consciences of Americans, both Protestants and Catholics alike. They're shocked. And they initially, the Protestants attempt to wage some war against this to stop it. They're the majority. They fail. Now, meanwhile, a man named Ed Bernays, in, he begins what's the psychoanalysis of advertising. So in 1929, he's able to manipulate psychologically women to start smoking. This is something that the the smoke the tobacco companies wanted to try to get women to do, but they were very much involved in the feminist temperance movement. They were not drinking or smoking. Ed Bernays was able to convince them to do it, and he did it psychologically. He was a psychoanalyst, and he said that these these cigarettes are torches of freedom. He had a, a female movie star light up uh, in this parade, and suddenly all the women were smoking. And this was really the birth of the rhetoric. Now, we saw in the, in the revolution back in 1776, we touched a, on the rhetoric, the importance of rhetoric. And this is something that uh, Leo XIII actually mentioned in Oceana in 1895, he mentions the effect of the press and how important it is to have the press in line because it's such a massive influence. And this is where the press and the advertisers begin to use psychology to manipulate people into doing what they desire. So Ed Bernays, he writes books about psychologically manipulating the masses in 1923, 1938, 1947, his book, Engineered Consent. So this is something that he brings about, brings into the corporate world of America and begins to dominate more and more as the propaganda machine, purely economical, seeks to psychologically manipulate the populace into buying this or that good. And this phenomenon continues to increase and increase. 
as this century goes on. And it's a very important aspect of it because Vatican II is very much influenced by the media, especially. And the media will also become a tool of the government as well. So we'll get to that in a moment. Now, the pornography in Hollywood is finally reacted to by the Catholics. Now, they they rear their heads out of their ethnic ghettos and they organize a boycott of Hollywood, which forces Hollywood to make decent movies. This is what's known as the code era. It's from 1932 to 1965. And this is the the time of the legion of decency. This was a Catholic movement, which spread to other countries, which is where Catholics were bound up to not go to movies, which were immoral. So they banned blasphemy, uh, glorification of evil, uh, sexual content, and this Hollywood is forced to capitulate because of the power of America. And this is really the growing climax of America, the Catholic power in America during this time period. Now, at this same time, in 1933, a man, a Frenchman by the name of Jacques Maritain comes to the United States and settles in Chicago. And this is a f- the very huge turning point here because Maritain becomes convinced that the American model is the ideal, at least now. And so this is the old Americanist idea that the American model is the ideal for the 20th century. And he writes a book in 1936 called Integral Humanism. And this is read by a man named Montini, who is the future Paul VI. He he loves the book so much, he translated it in Italian. He thinks it's great. And integral humanism becomes the architect, the architecture of Vatican II. So this is Jacques Maritain. So he's, he's coming into America at a time when the church is really on the rise. The church is growing in influence in the culture. It's forcing Hollywood to make decent movies. So it has a great influence, a great strength during this period. Now, we have the Second World War happens, uh, 39 to 45. And this just further furthers the same impact on the family and on the morals of people in this time period. The generations are shattered. And we see also in the 50s the continuation of the same sexual revolution in the 1920s. Now, in 1950, Pius XII mentions a conspiracy over the past 50 years against chastity. So the the churchmen are understanding that there is a great conspiracy, a a revolution brewing against chastity in the world of fashion and film, and they're seeing this. Now, in 1950s, Catholicism in the United States is at its height. There is a great deal of conversions. A popular TV host is Fulton Sheen. I mean, can you imagine a bishop having a popular television show today? Can you imagine that? Imagine what that would be like to have one of our bishops as a very popular host and not, not just a, you know, a bad bishop, but a great bishop who's, who is a a man of God. So there's also the anti-communist crusade during this time period. Now, however, there are three, at least three there's, and this is just, again, we're just trying, this is just a total introduction. There was a lot of different active factors uh, that I know you're bringing up in the chat that we can't get into every little, detail. Uh, They're trying to just give an introduction here. But during the 1950s, there are are three very strong factors which come up against the Catholic dominance in the 50s. 
One is the what E. Michael Jones argues in the Slaughter of Cities, which is a, an or orchestrated dismantling of the ethnic ghettos using uh, proxy warriors to try to force out the Catholics from the cities and from their communities, which is successful. <clears throat> this is the period where the race of white becomes a thing, becomes a label before you were Polish or Italian or Irish, but now you become white. And so this is a loss of the ethnic identity. And as the St. Raphael Society understood in the 1880s and 90s, they understood that when you lose that ethnic identity, it's so much easier to lose your faith. And so this is the beginning of the dismantling of the uh, Catholic power, even in the 50s. So another factor is the CIA begins psychological warfare. So Ed Bernays had been using it for advertisers, but the CIA begins to realize that they can use the psychological warfare. And that was being that was being used by the Bolsheviks for decades and even before with all sorts of different, you know, rhetoric like we talked about. I mean, that's just that's just the normal thing. It's using rhetoric to convince the masses. But the CIA begins to use it to uh, especially in Germany. So they're using a re-engineering re program to re-engineer the society, to love America, to love American things. There are Jews who are pushing pornography in Germany. So there's a, there's a big controversy in Germany during this time to try to force out the pornography, just like the Catholics did in America. And at the same time, there is the sexual revolution of rock and roll. So there's the continued music as it was in the 20s with the jazz. There is the, that continued music. And there is the rock and roll that happens in the 50s, which continues the sexual revolution. You also have the automobile becomes more accessible. The TV becomes more accessible. So we have the loss of courtship. The loss of the custom of courtship begins to be lost. And now we have dating where two people can go off by themselves and usually sin mortally and be at the near occasion of sin during that time. So then during this time, we always had the dominance of bishops who were Americanists, who wanted to keep up with the time and keep up with, with America as the ideal state. And the, the Catholics especially were seen as allies to the anti-Communist crusade. And so they were a great deal of help to the anti-communist crusade, but the the controversial nature also was pushing Americanism as the ideal for statehood all around the globe. And this is something that continues to this day. And so this is the controversy with the Americanism. Is America the ideal state, separation of church and state, uh, democratic rule, uh, strength of corporations and advertising? and the financial interests, the allowance of pornography, and that sort of thing, that is what gets pushed in this era of United States dominance of the world. Um, so the Catholics, however, continue to have a dominant idea of American, and this culminates in the election of John F. Kennedy. And in order to be elected as a Catholic, he, he, he says this speech in 1960, September 13th. He says this, I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic president prelate would tell the president, should he be a Catholic, how to act, where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political reference, and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, 
where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where the religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. So this is the speech that the that John F. Kennedy said in order to be elected. So he basically repudiated very forcefully all the teachings of the popes regarding church and state so that he could be elected. And this was something that he was able to do by renouncing the uh, the Catholic theology regarding church and state and firmly embracing publicly the Americanist ideology. And so Ratzinger later would lament, this is a quote from Principles of Catholic Theology uh, in 1987, page 367. He says, quote, something of the Kennedy era pervaded the council, Vatican II, something of the naive optimism of the great society. And so this is where we're going to leave it. So the, this, this Americanism begins to pervade the Second Vatican Council, and as Pope Benedict quoted, as I quoted in the beginning of this show, that is the idea that begins to dominate among the fathers of Vatican II. And we can understand some of why this is, because first of all, Europe had been destroyed in two world wars that America had come to basically kind of to the rescue of, of Europe and turned the tide in both wars. And so America was emerging as this dominant force in Amer in the world to militarily and, uh, sort of as a civilization. And also in the 50s, America had a dominant Catholic church. The Catholic church was on the rise in America at this time. Fulton Sheen was the popular television personality. So these these types of things, this, this is what would make the fathers of the Second Vatican Council think, well, you know, Pius IX was crazy. You know, America is, is, is just exploding with Catholicism right now. And it was. And so this is something that the that caused them to really take a very strong shift away from the Pian Magisterium, which had been speaking so skeptically about liberalism since 1789. So this is what makes this large shift. Now, this this um, this book by Weinhoff particularly makes this argument that the the CIA was involved in the psychological warfare, especially during the fifties. And they were spreading this ideology around Europe and the Americanist feelings that had already been present in the 1880s among Europeans was also inflamed further by this psychological propaganda. So all these forces coalesced to give us Vatican II. And so this is why this important, uh, study of America needs to, to go forward. And we need to really take a look at this as a part of our uh, dealing with the crisis that we're handling. So uh, any, any uh, comments, questions, anything at all, if you guys want to add into it. Um, once again, tomorrow we'll have uh, Edmund Maza on. We'll talk about um, toleration in the era of Christendom. We'll have uh, Timothy Gordon and Ryan Grant Friday night, we're going to talk, have a little debate about the American founding, talking about the thesis of Gordon. And then uh, we'll also have a last next week, we'll have economics, talk about economics. And then uh, moving on, we'll talk about black Catholic history. We'll talk about Hispanic Catholic history in America as well. So we're hopefully going to cover that thing. If, if you uh, 
I, I'd love to cover Italian Catholic history in America, Polish Catholic history in America as well, uh, Native American Indian uh, as well, Hurons tribes, these different tribes that became Catholic, the Southwest. Um, so any thoughts? I'm looking here when he has, uh, it's like people are talking about the assassination of JFK. So Scott's talking about Unitarianism. Um, that was something that Thomas Jefferson had been pushing. That was the quote that I mentioned. Unitarianism is is basically a non-Christian sect. It's one of the, it's basically coming out of the Second Great Awakening, I believe, uh, where we also were given Mormonism as well. Uh, so Unitarianism is, is basically, uh, it's been a while since I studied this, but to my knowledge, since I, last time I looked at that, uh, the Unitarians are basically somewhat secular humanists who are quasi religious and they kind of accept anybody and we don't want to uh, judge them too harshly and everybody kind of wins at the end. So that's kind of the Unitarian mindset. It's very Masonic. Um, so that's kind of that. I, w I wish I could give you more detail here, but um, that's basically it. Um, AJ says, can you talk about anti-Catholic sentiment in America? Yeah. I, um, I visited this, the first, I think it was the first church in in um, New York City, St. Peter and Paul. And at the first mass, it was a Christmas mass and there was riots outside the church. Can you imagine that happening? I mean, right now we've got church burning, so we have similar things happening. But um, the Kulum mentions how in the Council of Baltimore, Baltimore Catechism came out of the Third Council of Baltimore. They actually cut down a lot of things. They mandated that priests should wear the suits instead of the clerics, instead of the cassocks, uh, because that was that was illegal in certain areas. Um, the colony of Maryland used to be Catholic, and then they, the, the Protestants actually were able to force them out. And so there is a great deal of anti-Catholic sentiment in the, uh, like Charles of Carrollton, the richest Catholic in the whole 13 colonies, he was not even able to hold office in Maryland because he was a Catholic. So um, it goes all the, it goes all over the place um, in the local laws um, and in the, the common populace. So definitely, definitely um, a great legacy of anti-Catholicism. Um, Vox Populi says, we're the founders deists. There was a great deal of deism. Um, here's Kirk on that question. Um, he says, the majority of the framers of the Constitution were Episcopalians, but there were also Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Quakers, Unitarians, Methodists, Baptists, Catholics, and a few deists, notably Jefferson and Franklin. Um, so there, yeah, there's a, light deal, a great deal of deism, uh, masonry, but there's these quasi-Protestant sects too. Um, the... Uh, like Washington was an Episcopalian, but he was kind of a deist Episcopalian. Jefferson, he famously chopped up the Bible. He cut out all the miracles, which he didn't believe in. Um, so there's definitely, definitely different factors in this. Um, the 
Let's see. Fox Popley says, can we consider, consider deism the atheism of that time? I think, I think we can. I think deism is essentially a secular humanism before secular humanism was a term. Uh, so I definitely think that's a strong factor. Um, but I, I think that there is a, a good case to be made that um, there's still a, a great deal of Catholic thought, even in these framers, and so I, I, I view it as, I mean, to me, I, I can, from what I can tell from the history, it's very mixed. There, there are a great deal of number of factors and we can't really paint, paint everything black and white in different areas. So this is, uh, this is a, a factor that can be ideologized. And so we're going to talk more in the debate on Friday, get more into detail about the more of the specifics of Gordon's thesis about Catholic America and we'll talk more about that in detail. So uh, thank you for everybody's questions. I hope that was, this was helpful. Uh, so let's pray for um, the coming American election. Let's pray for the protection of our brethren in America and throughout the world against the anti-Catholic wave that's coming against us, that we can conquer in the name of Jesus Christ with charity and truth. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pater Noster, qui es in Jedi, sanctificetum in Montum, adveniat regnum tuum, via voluntas tua, sigurit cielo et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis odie, dimite nobis debita nostra, sigurit et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris. Et nenos in ducas in tentationem, salibano nos amalo. Amen. In nomine Patris, Filii, Spiritus Sancti. Amen.